The Beatles, it's a time of year when we get breaks. Christmas, New Year and then Anniversary Days, Waitangi Day, Easter's not far away, Anzac Day. But we're tired. We're not all tired, but many people seem to be. There are no statistics for it in New Zealand that I know of, but media have run stories quoting people who can't understand why they are worn out in the middle of a hot summer after a decent holiday. Across the Tasman, a study from the University of Melbourne has found that one in two workers aged between 18 and 54 have reported feeling exhausted at work. Half, half the workforce. Professor Ian Hickey is co-director of health and policy at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. Good morning, Ian. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Do it's you, a pleasure. Do you think we're as tired as Australians seem to be? I mean, it's been reported here, I don't know, I don't know about an official study, but weariness seems to be affecting both countries. Yes, and I've recently spent the uh, Christmas New Year period in the United Kingdom and the United States and Europe, and guess what? They're tired too. Gee. Well, a rise in tiredness across Australian workplaces has been noted in academia a few times, and, of course, it's been noticed by those people who are tired. What's causing it, do you think, please, Ian? Two things I think are going on. One is people are reporting it. They're saying it. The second thing is I think we have changing workplace practices and and people's expectations. We've been through some pretty tough periods in recent years. Changes in workforces, the COVID lockdowns and recoveries, return to work. And I think people are stopping and taking stock of their lives. And rather than just doing more and more, responding more and more to new technologies, new challenges, people are going, hang on a second, am I okay? Are we okay? Or am I a bit exhausted by the pace of change and the challenges we face? And do we need to stop and take stock about our quality of life, not just our capacity to live our life? Okay, that seems pretty plausible. The The, the point has been made, hasn't it, that it's not overwork. I saw on the ABC that 20 years ago, 18% of people were working more than 50 hours a week. That's now down, actually, to 11%. I'm I'm not sure how New Zealand compares, but there's probably a correlation. So we're living under more pressure than ever before? Yes, expectations are very high. People expect to lead a better life. They expect to lead a wealthier life. They expect governments to do more for them. They expect workforces to do more. We all want more. The question has become for people, is more better? Or do we need to think about how we live our lives? What's the quality? And then the quality of everyday life. I'm tied up in the physiology of this is your 24-hour body clock. It's what you do each day with energy, with enthusiasm, with engagement, how well you sleep at night, and how you get up the next day and do it again with energy, enthusiasm, and engagement. Or if you haven't got it right, are you just exhausting yourself? Do you just feel overwhelmed by the challenges and you don't have a sustainable way of taking forward your quality of life, not just your quantity of life? Okay. So stress leads to burnout. How much of stress, you started to touch on this, how much of stress 
can we attribute to social media, too much information, maybe also the endless bickering in media and having to process polarised opinions all the time and the societal gulfs that seem to be occurring. Are these factors as well? I'm glad you raised that. I think one of the factors that is going on has been the way in which our societies have changed and people feel more disconnected, more alone and feel they're having to cope on their own with financial challenges, health challenges, quality of life challenges, and don't feel so much that they're part of a group that's coping well with whatever life or the environment or the world throws up. The value of the people you work with, the value of the people who live around you, how as a country or a region are you really responding, or are you just arguing with everybody? Are you just disconnected, disenchanted with hate the government, hate the people next door, hate what the global community is doing, and feeling, interestingly, tiredness also runs with powerlessness. Don't feel that I can change any of this. I don't feel I can deal with it on my own. And I'd suggest to you, you can't. You need to be part of a functional community, family, region, systems, workplace, nation, that's got its act together. Then people feel powerful. They feel energetic. They want to participate. You know, the burnout, the disempowered, the tired is overwhelmed, can't do anything. Doesn't make any difference what I do. So I just don't know whether it's worth doing anything. Okay, the feeling that um, we're not all maybe paddling together in the same canoe, that maybe uh, the institutions in our society don't really give us stuff about this in ways about us in ways that we thought or ways that they did once, all these things. There's no easy solution for these, is there? No, there is no easy solution. One of the, I think the good things about it, if it's a good thing, about COVID was forcing people to think about this kind of stuff, the value of social connection, the value of social cohesion. Did you have your act together? Did in New Zealand you all go to bed together with the Prime Minister and deal with it collectively? Or did you end up fighting and bickering with each other? Certainly around the world, and, and uh, I've recently been at the Davos World Economic Forum, where there's a big discussion, do we all want to end up like the United States, per capita rich, but social poor, all fighting with each other, all shooting each other up, all yelling and screaming and seeing conspiracy everywhere? Or do we want to kind of respond constructively, collectively, and with some enthusiasm, with some energy, with some hope about facing the genuine challenges that we face, climactically, economically, intergenerationally? And I think, you know, New Zealand and Australia say they have this history of behaving together in local communities, you know, they've got a spirit of that. I think the current question is, as someone said to me recently, that's a nice idea, Ian, but is it really true? <laughs> is that how it is in Australia now? Is that how it really is in New Zealand now? Or is that a bit sort of rose-coloured glasses about the past? And we need to actively pursue these issues. They don't just come about by an act of a government or a change of a government or a political party or a media campaign. They're, they're genuine participation in your family, in your community, in volunteering, very important, intergenerational care, you know, taking care of your grandparents and your grandparents taking care of your grandkids, you know, working with your local footy team or your local church or in Australia, your local Surf Life Saving Club, you know, to what extent, and I say this because actually interestingly in COVID we saw a collapse in volunteering, we have not seen a return in Australia to that. 
We've also been working out the economic benefits of volunteering. You know, it's real work being done for free, but people will do it to the value of their community and do it with energy when it's appreciated. So I think there are some really important social ideas that are here. And rather than being sort of, you know, misty-eyed about it and wishing for the past, we've got to figure out ways of doing it now for our own collective benefit as well as our own individual mental health and well-being. Okay, giving ourselves meaning through community and in our families, all that's crucial and we I'm sure we all agree with you. Patients asking their GPs for medical certificates because they feel too exhausted to work. One GP says life expectations are different and workplace expectations. Can I get into the workplace? The conclusion would seem to be it's getting too hard to exist in the societies we're creating. I mean, you hear anecdotally that navigating work gets harder and harder, toxic demands, complicated requirements, new tech to keep up with, people being left behind. That surely must be a big factor. Oh, look, workplace change at the moment, I think, is a huge issue. When a really interesting period of social change, just what exactly work is, what's the benefit of structured work, being in shared workplaces, meeting face-to-face, what are the productivity issues and what are the social cohesion and intergenerational issues that arise? So, yeah, it's pretty confronting. No one really expected it. The COVID stuff didn't just affect our physical health care. It's changed our social environment, as has technology. Our capacity to do a lot of this stuff in different ways has really changed. So we are in a period of considerable social disruption without necessarily knowing what the right answer is. So are people being affected by that? You bet. Professor Ian Hickey is with us from the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. A couple of questions based on what we've just been saying. Uh, so we're often told in response to all this, exercise, meditate, breathe slowly, practice mindfulness, all, all sorts of good advice, possibly not taken by most people. Turn your phones off. Uh, impractical advice. I mean, the world doesn't stop because you want to get off. So I guess I'm repeating the previous question about what we do, but there would seem to be nothing. We're just kind of waiting and seeing what happens. Well, you raise an interesting thing. I do not think the answer is to just tell you to meditate, just tell you to be mindful, just tell you, well, you're actually out there on your own. The world's gone to hell in a handbag, so you better (laughs) learn to breathe. You know, I don't think that kind of way of approaching the problem, which is very popular, might be brought to you by your local government or your corporation or by some app or whatever, just get your own act together, actually is that helpful. Humans aren't like that. Humans are social animals who cope when they come together to deal with adversity or to deal with, in this case, change collectively. That's when we feel better about it. So might surprise you. I'm not in favour of all that just you exercise, you eat right, you sleep right, and good luck, buddy. I hope it all works out well. I think that's when when individuals become quite disenchanted with government, with others, and with what you might call, and some of the things I'm somewhat associated with myself, the mental health and wellbeing industries. That isn't really helping. And I think people are telling us in these surveys, all that stuff is not really helping. So this is a challenge to human innovation, not just at the individual level, but at the collective level. I, I love to travel to other countries that are said to be economically poor, but are more socially cohesive, places where there's much more, for example, three generations living in the one household. People are much more identified with their local church, their local community, the region in which they live. They're much more socially cohesive than our societies have become. We now have the wealth, 
the individual capability, the health to all live more separately and all pursue our own individual stuff. But then we're told, okay, good, you did that. You better cope on your own. Guess what? doesn't really work. We're not doing so good at that. <laughs> we don't want to give up the wealth, though, do we? That's the thing. We don't want to No, no, no. We're desperately acquisitive. We all want more, you know. We all want to be richer, asset rich, but we may perversely end up being mental health poor. And this is a really challenging kind of idea. We are so GDP-occupied, economic growth. Every day there's an economist, treasurer, finance minister, I'm sure you've just elected a government which is going to make sure your GDP goes up, not down. We're in the mental wealth business. I want to know as you do that, as in our own country, does your mental wealth go up or down? More people report, and certainly more young people report, their mental health and well-being is worse, not better, even though their individual wealth went up. Some of this is surely greed, isn't it? Old-fashioned greed. I mean, the thing is that the organisations themselves are under pressure, aren't they, from stakeholders and shareholders and greedy owners and also beleaguered owners trying to keep their businesses afloat. Everybody's in the same boat, even if they've got a nicer cabin, uh, Ian. So greed is one aspect, and I think in a lot of societies there's discussion, as there is in Australia right at the moment, about the gradient of inequity. You know, is it how much you've got or how much compared to the bloke next door have you got? And, you know, this is one of these kind of interesting things about individual wealth versus collective wealth. Generally speaking, mental health and well-being has been demonstrated to go down if you're comparing yourself all the time with the bloke next door. Well, I've got a boat, but he's got a really big yacht. In fact, he's got three of them. I feel worse. I don't feel very good about my own boat. You know, my own house, my own cabin. Exactly. You know, so, you know, this is a problem in the wealth-driven individual societies in which we live. And the general notion of development or economic development being central to better lives. Now, of course, having a roof over your head, having income, not being poor, having good health, having access to education, these are all important social assets. But just acquiring them for yourself. There's a great expression in individual, in uh, Aboriginal Australia, Indigenous Australia, you know, you really can't be okay if the rest of your mob is not okay. You know, not are you okay, but are we okay? You know, what is the collective wealth, not just the individual wealth? And when you put a bigger emphasis on collective wealth, individuals' mental health and well-being goes up. The more you put the emphasis on individual wealth, the more individual mental health and well-being of those who are at the wrong end of it goes down. I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that's true. And the problem is that just, you know, if you do feel overworked um, and beleaguered, just taking time off. I think I've seen you say this too. Just taking time off ain't going to work. And now you come back and you're in the same place that you were before taking time off. You make a key point, and you made a key point about people going to the GP earlier on. Now, we have a terrible expression. I apologise in advance, but here it is. We don't go well to go. We don't get well to go to work. We go to work to stay well. If you go and say, I've got to have time off to feel better, I'm afraid you've probably gone for the wrong solution. The more you're engaged, the more you're doing stuff that matters, the better you feel. And the tiredness one is an area I've actually personally been involved in for about 30 years. And the trick is to say to people, okay, okay, you're really tired. Go and rest. Go and lie down. Do nothing. Take time off. And then come back and tell me how you feel. Guess what? Most people who do that come back saying they're more tired. They feel worse. (laughs) 
And they've tried that and it didn't work. Whereas those people who've been able to engage and do things and participate despite being tired often report they feel better as a consequence of being active. So it sounds very paradoxical. It sounds quite perverse. I mean, imagine seeing a doctor like me that says, look, you're really tired, (laughs) but now what I want you to do is be active. But we're involved in a lot of systematic research around tiredness. And despite what you might think, the counterintuitive nature of it, the getting up and doing something and participating and being active reduces the tiredness. And I think this is the thing in the workplace. A lot of the tiredness is people's frustration, lack of engagement, can't see the point, feeling overwhelmed, and needing to find a new way to work and engage that reduces that tiredness. So act paradoxically, as you say, and that's so interesting what you told us about that. And just a little note, I think you also advise, speaking of the workplace, finding new directions within your career instead of tossing the career. This is such an important point. Um, Many of us are fortunate to live quite long lives and quite long productive lives. It also goes to another, here's another terrible line for your morning in case you're thinking about it on a Sunday morning, never retire. (laughs) Just change what you do. Okay, just change what you do. We have a lot of research around retirement. When people retire and do nothing, their brains shrink, their cognition and their memory declines, and they feel awful. (laughs) However, change what you do, you bet. The brain and your physiology, and most of us respond to doing different things, learning new skills, being challenged in different ways. So rather than just chuck the job in, or in the great Australian tradition, go and lie on a beach, and when men do that, they lie on the beach, they get depressed, and then they die. (laughs) Not very... Actually, what they need to do is find a different thing to do that's challenging and engages them in a different way, hopefully builds on the skills they've got in a new set of challenges. Humans respond to new challenges, to novelty, to changes in the environment that engage them again with energy, with passion, with commitment in trying to solve new stuff and often with new groups. Uh, I have people in the university sector, people I really admire, who've retired as professors to go and work in non-government organisations or go into work in physical trades and go do something really different using their skill set, but in a new way. And guess what? They're in vigour. They were tired and bored and had it burn out with being a professor. They're having the time of their life in their late 60s and 70s in their new career, in a new way that's engaging. I'm glad we called you up. Thank you very much, um, Professor Ian Hickey, for giving us your time too. That was great. It's a pleasure.